All right. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, with me today is a guy that I'm really interested to talk to um, because the way that he and his organization are kind of seeing the world um, is different, but I, th- I think cr- really necessary. So uh, Martin Whitaker is the founding CEO of Just Capital, and Just Capital is actually a nonprofit that really figures out and works with large corporations, their investors on kind of what they're doing in terms of, and, and Martin can explain it better than I can, obviously, but the public's priorities, right? So what are you what are you doing beyond just maximizing profits for the shareholders? So anyway, Martin, first first off, thanks so much for joining us. Bradley, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about what we're doing. Yeah. So so I, I want to jump into the ranking because that's obviously the, the, the news hook for this. But um, g- give us, you know, and you're the guy that did this, t- tell me, what the point was in founding Just Capital and kind of the larger philosophical place you're trying to move the the conversation to? Um, great, it's a it's a it's the right place to start. We um, the the bigger picture here is that Just was founded as a nonprofit because we felt as though, and the founding board members felt that you know solving our most uh, cha- you know, difficult challenges as a, as a society, you've got to get the private sector to do more. Philanthropy uh, and, and government are just are not going to get the job done. And so we felt like if you could harness the resources of the private sector, especially big corporations, you could have a huge amount of impact. Um, and, you know, you, the, the impact would be would be longer term. Um, and it would it would really leverage the resources of the private sector, and and we started at a time when I think um, companies are recognizing that how much value they create for society is also the path to success for them. So, you know, I think a lot of things changed over the seven years that we've been doing this, but that's really the big idea. How do we get capitalism? How do we get companies? How do we get the private markets? you know, working to solve problems, not make them worse. And, and, and it feels like that that mentality is starting to shift. So for so long, kind of the Milton Friedman, University of Chicago view of corporations, which is that our only function is to maximize profits for shareholders, re- really was the predominant view, both in the U.S. and, and, and maybe even globally. Um, and, I, and I think it's only recently, from what I've seen through the kind of work that you guys are doing, through what the Business Roundtable did and others, where there's started to become more of a double bottom line and more of a sense of, look, a corporation does have to maximize profits for shareholders, but it also has obligations to society, to its employees, to its customers, to its vendors, to everyone else. Um, and that's how we should be looking at the definition of a company right now. Is, is that kind of a decent summary of it? Is that right? Well, I would I would draw a tighter connection. I, I, okay. I think I think the way, you know, the path to financial success, the, the way you create more value for shareholders is by creating value for your stakeholders. So, you know, it's typically presented as a sort of either or, either I'm a good guy looking after my employees and giving back to communities mm-hmm. and, you know, addressing climate change, or I'm maximizing profit. And, and I think we're trying to bust that myth and say, actually, the path to, to, to you know, more sustained value creation for shareholders is exactly by thinking through this stakeholder lens. And, and so just, just I, I agree with you, but to play devil's advocate for a second, what if the skeptical listener is sitting here thinking like, 
okay, how is raising costs, lowering your margins, having to give away more of your money, not participating in things that are maybe environmentally damaging, but lucrative, how does that all ultimately benefit the shareholder? Well, anyone who's ever run a business knows that if you don't look after your employees, uh, you're, you're on a, you're on a, uh, you know, a limited uh, time frame like yep. for success, like yep. investing in people is 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 the path to business longevity and business success. Um, I, I think you you know we don't really we're we're only trying to figure out really what that means. You know what what is investing in my everybody says you know our our greatest asset walks out the door at five o'clock every day. Uh, it's our people. Okay, yeah. well what what does that mean? What why do we count wages as an expense? Let's let's look at, for example, situations like PayPal has done right now, where lifting wages and actually providing a path to economic security for lowest lowest income workers has a great payback for the business. You have employees that are more engaged, you have lower turnover. Uh, that greater engagement leads to greater customer loyalty and satisfaction, uh, greater pricing power, greater margins. So. I'm not saying this is simple and, and I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, uh, sort of overly um, naive about, you know, what makes a business great. But I do think these are issues which bear closer examination. And, and I do think that, you know, this, this idea that somehow a, giving, a company that gives backs to the communities where it operates, like Chobani, it's a famous story of how sure. you know their their success is so intertwined with how they invested in the community in upstate New York. Um, you know, you ask Hamdi, the founding CEO, he'll tell you. So I don't think we're making this stuff up. I just think this is great business. We just we don't really measure it that well. Right. So the, when do you think this notion of hey being penny wise pound foolish really is bad business long term? When did it start kind of occurring to people, and, and ha- why? I think I think it began. Well, we've seen sort of the, the the corporate sustainability movement take shape. Really, you know, I would say over the last twenty years, I've been doing this since the mid nineties. Um, it's really you know around two thousand where you started to see companies really uh, begin to look at how this affects the bottom line. A guy called John Elkington wrote a famous book on the triple bottom line. There was mm-hmm. a whole bunch of companies of which I was I was part of one, Innovest, um, led by Matthew Kiernan, that began to have this idea that, 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 wait a second, this is actually a path to greater return. And, and we should talk to investors about it that way, not as exclusionary or divesting or stuff like that. So so that sort of evolved over the years. You know, we've had moments of great acceleration. I think of the governance crisis around Enron and WorldCom in the early 2000s. I think of major environmental events which have spotlighted, and of course, you know, climate change is now one of the you know, you know key issues globally. You know, those are business issues. And so, I think over the last two years, though, this is a really key point. Social issues have really come to the fore. You know, human human safety, human lives. Uh, certain livelihoods have been affected by the pandemic, by uh, George Floyd, by the economic shutdown and reopening. And so we've begun to look at the social impact of business in a very in a very different way. And I think we're starting to see activism by different stakeholders, and that translates into business risk and opportunity. Anyway, so I think this is this has been a, this has been something that's been changing over the last twenty odd years. 
And now it's just front and center and everybody is aware of just how important this is. And, and so my daughter, she's 15, so of course she's a, a Marxist. But do you think ultimately <laughs> kind of given a, a, at least kind of the big coastal cities, sort of the, the heavy push left in the U.S., uh, kind of redefining the underlying purpose of a corporation allows for Gen Z to kind of accept capitalism more? Or is it ultimately once she goes from living under my roof, everything is taken care of to having to make her own living, uh, her perspective will change anyway? Well, um, you know, I try not to think about this through the lens of politics, to be quite honest with you, because, um, you know, I look at it as good business. And, and in our polling, which is sort of interesting here, you know, we find that when we ask people of all ages, all political ideologies, all geographic regions, um, all races, you know, the, 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 we start with a simple question and a blank sheet of paper. What does a just company mean to you? And we do that every year. And we've spoken now to, I don't know, maybe 150,000 people all around the country. Um, and you tend to get a lot more agreement than you might think. You know, mm -hmm. most people, regardless of age, political background, et cetera, always sort of gravitate towards how a company treats its workers. Are they paying a fair wage? Like, is it really political to pay pay someone a fair wage? I mean, I don't, I don't, I hope not. I hope that's not really. I hope that's something we could agree is enshrined in the American dream. Now, it's not available necessarily to everybody equally, but but I do think that I, I, if we take the politics out of it and just look at what kind of uh, what kind of values do we do we have? What what how do we want our businesses to show up? You know, in our daily lives and. You might care about one thing. Your daughter might care about something else. I might care about, you know, uh, something something different. That's totally fine. I can mm -hmm. reflect that in the way I choose to work, the way I the way I act as a consumer or even as an investor. And that that's what is happening right now across the country. So, so you guys every year do a ranking of U.S. companies, kind of judging them in terms of their just corporate behavior. How'd you come up with the idea? When did you start doing it? Idea came really from Deepak Chopra, who took the idea through through a, a few other founding board members to a guy called Paul Tudor Jones. Sure. And if you know Paul, you know he's a Wall Street legend, yep. a phenomenal philanthropist. And immediately, you know, he seized on this as as something that he felt could have massive impact. Uh, you know, a real leverage effect of working with the private sector. So, so that's sort of what would be you know was the idea. He wanted to create a sort of a, a competition among companies to be more just. So that led to the idea of the ranking. He also felt that this could not be about what he what what he prioritized. So then that was the idea, all right, well let's go ask the public. Let's let's see what Americans want of of corporate America. Mm -hmm. And that will be like an annual pulse that we'll take. And now we do polling on, a, on an almost continual basis, but but that, that's how we came up with the idea of the ranking. And that gave us the chance then to really try to tell company's story as objectively as we can, trying to just, you know, just trying to get to the truth. What are you doing on, I don't know, creating jobs in America? What are you doing on veterans hiring? Things like that. Right. And, and, and so and, what, what and, are the key criteria that you look at? Well, there's five, there's five major buckets of, of issues. One is workers. Another, uh, the next is, is uh, communities. Mm -hmm. customers, the environment, and then shareholders. So there's 20 issues. 
which have gone through this whole process of focus groups and are, are polling um, and identified consistently as being the top priorities. We, we, we categorize them into those five major areas, the five major stakeholder categories. And on the top issues this, this year are right now, number one, pays a fair and live, living wage. Number two, creates jobs in the US. And number three, is accountable for creating value for all the stakeholders. So it's interesting, those three things together, 40% overall of the, of the ranking model. And if you, if you looked at it just through the worker lens, I think there's five or six separate issues underneath the worker category, that, that also is like 40% of the model. And do you feel like companies have fundamentally changed their underlying kind of view or effectively they're saying, okay, based on the labor market at any given moment, um, we may need to treat people differently and better if we want to recruit and retain employees because that makes us more money over the long term. Um, I, I guess the question is, are they fundamentally seeing the world differently or effectively are they just responding to changes in the labor market? I think it's a bit of both, quite honest. I, I, I see, you know, we track the Russell 1000, which gives us a universe of, I don't know, roughly 950 companies. I would I would say each and every one of them is in a, in a different point in the journey. You know, you've got leaders like our number one company right now is Alphabet. Uh, Microsoft was number one for the previous two years running. You know, good companies in the top 10 have been consistently there like, like Salesforce. Um, you know, those companies are further on the journey. But there are some companies that, for whatever reason, maybe it's a change of leadership. Maybe it's a negative event that has occurred to them. Maybe they are subject to some form of activism by a stakeholder and they're responding, or maybe they're just reacting, as you said, to, 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 you know, market conditions, Mm -hmm. whatever the reason, I think we want to try and meet them where they are and help them on their journey. So Alphabet, as you mentioned, sort of the the number one company this year was last year as well. What makes them so great? To be top of the ranking for us, you got to be, you know, good at pretty much everything. So, you know, they are, they do very well on all of our employer worker uh, categories. Um, you know, I'll draw your attention to their report on, uh, let's say, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, are they you know, their pay equity work? You know, they publish uh, real numbers. You know, it, it it's a very rigorous, uh, transparent exercise, and it shows the journey that they're on. I think that's that's a sort of a sign of leadership um, of, of being able to, you know, being willing to, to sort of be transparent about what you're doing, even if your story's not, not perfect or the, or the, you know, you don't have a, you don't have a sort of a great, you know, thing to celebrate. Like your, your disclosure is, is, is a key part of this journey, but alphabet just does really well across the board, you know? And, and um, you know, I think they, you look at their commitment to renewable energy, they're very strong on climate not just internally within their operations, but through their products. Um, and, you know, they've really invested heavily in uh, giving back to the communities where they operate. So they just do well across the board, Bradley. So if you look at the top 10, by my read, and I'll just go through it quickly for the listeners, Alphabet 1, Intel 2, Microsoft 3, Salesforce 4, Bank of America 5, PayPal 6, Apple 7, NVIDIA 8, Verizon 9, Cisco 10. The only one that's that's definitely not a technology company, although I guess they would like to claim they are, is, is Bank of America. Um, why are nine of the top 10 companies tech companies? 
Well, I think when you, if you look at the overall ranking, which which is what you just read out, you know, you basically got companies that, um, you know, have uh, leaders that and a culture that sort of embraces this idea of a stakeholder model. They've done well for their shareholders. They've created jobs. They pay well. Um, so there are structural reasons, you know, I think why you tend to see those kinds of companies do well based on, you know, what, as I said, what, what, what the public have prioritized. If you were to draw the lens back a little bit and look at the whole Just 100, then you tend to see every sector represented to different, to different degrees. Last year, we had, yeah. we had a lot of pharma companies, which, which wouldn't, you know, surprise you maybe during COVID. Right. Um, so it kind of depends, you know, it, it, it depends, you know, how you look at it. But I think those companies typically, uh, you know, have have really taken the lead on on uh, in particular investing in, you know, the, the their employees and and fair pay and things like that. So if you look at the last company on your list, it's Target, which I think generally actually has a pretty good reputation. But um, someone might argue, okay, of of those top 10 companies, they are all incredibly reliant on talent, right? And they are effectively as good as their talent. So they should be doing whatever they possibly can to attract workers, keep them happy, you know, everything else. So at least for that category, it's in their interest to be at the very top, whereas for Target, um, you know, at least at the stores, you could, someone might argue, well, it's much more fungible at that level. So they don't have to focus on it as much because, you know, they can just replace people more easily. Um, is that the case or that just kind of outdated thinking? I mean, to be honest, I, I, I think it's a little outdated insofar as um, the benefits that we've seen big retailers like Target, uh, you know, generate from investing in their human capital, even throughout their stores and in the form of training, you know, the, the, the partnerships with community colleges. Um, you know, I think, I think they are looking at this as a way to develop, uh, you know, a pipeline of talent that will help, you know, their, their company compete and succeed. So I don't see this. I don't, I don't think it's quite as simple as, okay, we've got a bunch of low paid workers. We can swap them out if they quit. I, you know, we're in a very tight labor market. Obviously I think every company is, is trying to attract and retain talent. Yeah. Um, but I do think that what, what I see is a much more, let's call it uh, enterprise-wide recognition that investing in our people is gonna, is gonna, you know, uh, is gonna benefit us as a company. And actually Target's done a great job of lifting wages. If you look at Target, Walmart, they've all, you, you could argue whether that's been forced, their hands have been forced by Bezos on Amazon, but regardless, Target, uh, like Walmart, you know, have lifted wages on multiple occasions over the last, you know, two to three years. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, of the five categories, what surprised you in terms of, hey, companies are overperforming where I would have expected? Um, and where do you think there's still kind of consistent shortfall? I don't, I'm not sure I think about it in terms of overperformance. Um, you know, I think what surprised me overall was... Uh, when I, when I step back and look at all the results, um, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about climate change and companies' commitments to net zero. You know, we saw Exxon, another Just 100 company, announced that a couple of days ago. You know, it surprised me that that wasn't higher up, up in the weightings of the issues. And it surprised me that, you know, we, we still have things like 
um, social media? You know, is Facebook and social media, is it good for society or is it bad for society? You know, as many people think that it's toxic, think, or, you know, as, as think that it's indispensable. So I think there are some really tough issues to work through that show up in the rankings. Um, I also think we see, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement in disclosure. We see tremendously inconsistent data put forward by companies on, for example, you know, how they follow up, following up on their commitments they made uh, last year on racial equity. How are they following up on, you know, their, their, their sort of the benefits that they put in place during COVID to try and help people, you know, take care of their family members who might be sick or something like that. You know, a lot of those were, were sort of pulled back, you know, um, or removed. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement in how companies supply the market with that kind of information. And then the market will make up its own mind. Look, if people don't care about this stuff, you know, then, then, then companies are not going to report it. But I, I don't think that's the way things are going. If anything, companies are reporting more, not less. It just, we need better ways to make sure that data actually means something. Right. And, and so ultimately, let's say we're in a world where companies keep doing better and better in all five scores. Um, and, and the vision that you, Martin, have for the world, it, it reflects kind of where corporate America or globally corporate things are. Um, how is it different? How, how, what does it look like? I mean, I think if we can get, uh, you know, markets and big companies doing more, I think it creates a sort of a, a healthier society. I think we start to see inequality, division, um, you know, the kind of mistrust that you see, you know, we have a, we have a pandemic of mistrust right now. Um, you know, I like to think that, uh, as our polling would suggest, that, you know, most people really, you know, want to create a better future for themselves, for their children. They want to put food on the table. They want to feel good about the work that they do and have a sense of dignity and pride about their you know, uh, the way they spend their time and we spend most of our time at work. And, and, and I think that that, you know, if, if we can promote that kind of outcome, if you can begin to see the divisions that plague us somehow begin to heal or, or create at least a sort of a more shared vision, um, that, that, that's going to lead to a much healthier society and a healthier democracy, you know, and that, that ultimately, I know that that's 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 probably sounds a bit fanciful, but I do think that's what's at stake right now. Yeah. Well, look at it, look. I don't I don't think it's totally fanciful because if if you look at it and say, right now, arguably the biggest problem with our democracy is the people who are frustrated uh, by society on either side tend to be the most politically engaged and active, um, which means that. Uh, all of the incentives to politicians are to kind of take a hard line and, and nothing gets done. It's just constant fighting um, with less inequality. You know, you should see less frustration, which should then give politicians a little more of a permission structure to to start compromising and working with each other again. So, yeah, I think if, if your thing works, then society benefits you know across the board on probably everything, I, I would say. Private sector, $20 trillion private sector, you know. It, 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 if we can get that working a little bit towards, you know, creating, you know, a stronger, healthier, uh, more united society, then, 
that, you know, good things are going to happen. You know, I, I sort of feel like this old paradigm of, well, it's either government fixes the problem or no, 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 it's just straight trickle down, you know, free market economics, you know, that, 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 that sort of, you know, has led us to where we are. And I, I, I don't think it's too much to ask, for business, you know, you start to see it, as I said, we're starting to see this sort of change now in society driven by lots of different things, but that, that can only create, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a future that I think more people would want to buy into and feel a sense of ownership over. Yeah. So given that you're fundamentally trying to really change sort of social and intellectual norms, uh, among business leaders, um, if, if the rest of sort of societal leadership said, okay, Martin, how do we help you do that? Um, what would that look like? Like, what, what would you want the government p- to be doing? What would you want the media to be doing? You know, how can people help you kind of get companies to the right place intellectually and mentally? Well, I think, you know, in a broader sense, you know, we are, we are looking to try and catalyze a movement. I mean, I think if the market is hungry for information on what companies are actually doing, on these issues that the American people have identified, you start to get much greater levels of accountability. You know, you asked me about sort of, you know, the, the history of like corporate change in this area. Yeah. I don't think the stakes were that high 10 or even five years ago uh, for companies to, to really invest heavily. Now I think the stakes are extraordinarily high, not just for society, but for, for individual companies. Um, you know, and how they compete and win in America and on the global stage. So I look at that and I think, what, 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 you know, what would really help that movement? And it's really about holding companies to account, demanding information of them. That's, you know, that's why we have such a, you know, strong capital markets. When you think about the level of disclosure on financial performance, imagine if we had the same, you know, demand from the market for company stakeholder performance. You know, I think you'd start to see a lot more investment in those things. You'd see a lot more analysis on, wait a second, where is the business case really strongest? Where should I be investing across those five stakeholders to generate the best return? You know, the biggest bang for my buck. That's, that's what we've got to figure out. And that will only happen if investors and job seekers and, and employees and, 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 you know, elected officials begin to look at the private sector as something that is a path to, to a solution as opposed to, you know, the kind of cynicism we have now and, and mistrust. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, so Gen Z and maybe true millennials too, I would imagine one of the ways in which they're aiding your cause is it seems like they do make consumer purchasing decisions based, you know, not just on sort of price, but, but on the, the company's overall reputation and narrative and how they treat stakeholders and everything else. Um, wh- why is this new generation that way? Well, that, that, that's a bigger question than I'm going to answer. I've got four uh, kids, by the way, who are between the age of uh, 23 and 16. So I'm living that right now. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, why are they that way? That I think they are very aware of what's happening in the world. I think through the noise of social media and, uh, you know, and, you know, the information sort of blizzard that they live in, you know, I, I do think they are able to pick up signals of like what's going on in the world. What do I, well, how do I think about that? What's my place? They're asking themselves questions, which, which I don't think I was asking myself when I was 18 or 20. 
Um, so their awareness is much greater. I, you know, I, I also think there's a sense of empowerment that comes with having that kind of information. You know, I think people are less willing to accept the norms of business and, and, and a career. You know, obviously people think much more differently about work these yeah. days. You know, yeah, for sure. what's the relationship I have with 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 my employer or, or, or the com- company that I'm doing contract work with? So the whole lived experience of people as they journey through those formative years about how they spend their time, what causes they, they lend their energy and their money to, et cetera. I just think it's totally changed. And, and, and it will, if we can harness that a little bit more, that that's the key, quite honestly, is how do you harness that? How do you actually get that, you know, working, you know, anyone who's been in the consumer industry will tell you it's very tough to actually get people to change their consumer behavior, even though they might tell you they, they you know, they're, they're going to do all these things very rarely act on that. So that's where information comes in, you know, and if, if you supply with information you can believe that you trust, you're much more willing, I think, to go the extra mile and change your behavior or invest a different way. Yeah. So arguably, because, you know, we all spend all day decrying social media and all the ways it's destroying <laughs> society. It has helped contribute to a different perspective, kind of a, a generational paradigm shift in thinking um, where, you know, our, our kids do look at uh, consumer decisions and purchasing decisions kind of in, in a much more holistic way than, than you or I would. I think it's forcing the issue. I don't know if it makes, if it really makes folks more informed. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Edelman Trust Barometer just released. Um, no. you know, it, I assume we're down again. <laughs> well, it's interesting. The governments and media are actually seen by majorities being divisive. Um, whereas companies, and especially quote unquote, my employer is most trusted. So people are looking to business to do more, um, expecting business actually to do more. We see that in our own polling. People, people are expecting companies to speak up on issues now right. and to actually do something. Yeah. Um, cri- so, crypto is a manifestation of that too, right? People absolutely. Put, yeah, yeah. People are putting their trust in something other than the traditional institutions that they think have failed them. Exactly. And, and I think we're still, though, early in, in, this, in this whole area of like, you know, where do I get my information? How do, I, how do I know it's true? You know, we're in a sort of, we're in a bit of an Orwellian 1984, which I read recently, <laughs> uh, double think area where truth is, is d- dependent on your point of view. Uh, Martin, how can people learn more about Just Capital? And if they wanted to get involved in some way, could they? Absolutely. We are open for business. We want people using our stuff, uh, helping us. Give us give us your opinion on what companies are doing. We're open for partnerships. Uh, we'd love to to work with anyone listening to this. Go to justcapital.com. Uh, I think you just click a button. And, and I, I can tell you that every email we get is read. But yeah. but I welcome that and invite everyone to reach out. Cool. Uh, and it's a really good website. So I think if anyone goes on there, you'll find it really easy to use and, and, and fun and interesting. So, uh, Martin, congratulations on everything you guys have been doing. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bradley. Appreciate it. Take care.